Our text this morning is Matthew 26. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there, uh, either uh, physically or on your device. Matthew 26, four verses, one of the more well-known passages of Scripture, maybe if you grew up in church, verse 36. This is what Jesus' disciple Matthew writes. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so we have this passage here in Matthew. And uh, in context in the book of Matthew, we uh, see just before this, the Last Supper, Jesus gathered together with his wholehearted community or on the road to wholehearted community of disciples to share a meal with him where Jesus explains that he's going to die. And Peter, as usual, kind of pops off uh, is, in his rash, kind of with his rash emotional self and says, hey, uh, I, I will follow you to death, Jesus. I'll be loyal with you to the end. And so we have this, this little narrative here sandwiched between the Last Supper uh, and Peter's confession and then Judas's betrayal of Jesus here at the end of this section. And it takes place in this uh, place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane... Um, it's, it's this, the best way to put it, like a garden park on the side of the Mount of Olives outside, just outside the city gates of Jerusalem. In John chapter 18, uh, John tells us this is a place where Jesus and his disciples went frequently. Jesus would go there to get away from the crowds. This is a rhythm in Jesus's life. He gets away from active ministry when he gets tired um, or in some cases to prevent exhaustion and burnout, and he prays. He goes to a lone, literally the translation, he goes to a solitary place or a lonely place. And this is one of those places. I mean, if you've ever been to an olive garden or sat under an olive tree, it's, it's a lonely place. I mean, the trees themselves are disfigured and gnarled, and they have these big branches that provide solitude. And this is a favorite place of Jesus and his disciples to hang out, pray. So familiar, actually, that Judas, it says, when, they, when he brought them to arrest Jesus, he knew exactly where they would be because Jesus spent so much time here. This had been a place where the disciples hung out a lot. And it says here, uh, Matthew says, that he began to, verse 37, be sorrowful and troubled. Now that, that phrase, that verb phrase is important. He began to, it's a progressive verb tense, meaning literally something overcame him, like something he became aware of that, that kind of pounced on him unexpectedly. It says he began to be sorrowful. This word sorrowful is, the, sorrowful is the word lupeo. It means deeply grieved. Some translations say sad, deeply sad, or even depressed can be this language. He began to be depressed. He began to be troubled. He was feeling troubled. Adamaneo is the word there. It means anxiety. He was feeling anxiety. He was feeling distress. This is the emotional world of Jesus as he goes into the garden. In Mark's account, he uses an even stronger word, ekthembestai, which references a person who's helpless and disoriented because literally a horror has overcome them. 
I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've just all of a sudden like horror or dread pounces on you unexpectedly. You're walking somewhere late at night and you hear a noise and all of a sudden this sense of dread and paralysis comes over your body. Maybe you've been a victim of trauma. You know what it's like to feel deeply distressed. Luke tells us that when Jesus came back, he was so distressed, so anxious, so sad that he literally was sweating drops of blood, which is actually a real medical condition. I don't know how to exactly pronounce it, but hematohydrosis. Sweating blood. He was so distressed. He, he told the disciples, I am deeply grieved. So he didn't just feel these emotions. He actually expressed them to the disciples. He invites them into the glory and the grief. This is something that Jesus would do. Remember, he took his inner core three to the Mount of Transfiguration where they saw his glory. Here he invites them into his deepest grief in Gethsemane. And, and the language here when he says, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death, literally means, literal translation, grief encircled is my soul, my psyche. It's one of the only two times in the New Testament where Jesus talks about his soul. My soul is encircled unto death or my soul is heavy to the point of death, or I feel so bad I could die. Now, the question is, why is Jesus feeling this level of grief? Why is he in so much anguish, right? Like many Christians have died martyrs' deaths, you know, in some kind of a William Wallace style where they scream out at the end, freedom, and that's not what Jesus is doing. So is Jesus just emotionally weak? Like why is he all of a sudden freaking out? Why is his body freaking out? He, he goes on to talk about, in verse 39, the cup. That, that's the key to understanding why Jesus is feeling this deep anxiety. He says, let this cup pass from me. Now, the cup in the ancient world of the Greco-Romans was a cup of suffering. Think of the famous story of Socrates drinking the cup and, and dying. It was, a, it was a toxin. It was a poison. He was poisoned to death. Crimes against the state. The cup in biblical language, though, in the Old Testament specifically, is biblical language for God's judgment and his punishment on sin and wickedness. You can read about this in Isaiah 54, and you can read about this in Ezekiel 23. It's the cup of God's wrath against human wickedness and evil. Jesus is about to enter into the full wrath of God. The one who only knew communion with God is about to be separated from the presence of his Father. And that's important for us to remember, like in the garden, Jesus is not acquiring new information. Like he knew he was going to die. He just spent chapter, earlier in chapter 23 telling his disciples, I'm going to die. So he's not afraid of death per se. This is not just death, although that's probably a real human emotion as well. But he was beginning to experience for the first time the wrath of God, the sinless son of God, looking out over the abyss as Jonathan Edwards says in a famous sermon on this passage, over the abyss of the hell of being cut off from the presence of God. For the first time, when he prayed to the Father, there was nothing there. This is the beginning of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, learning obedience and suffering. That's why Jesus was freaking out, not just because he was going to die, but because he was about to be sacrificed in our place for our sins. He's gonna bear the wrath of his father. Now, I wanna use this story to talk about Jesus's larger 
approach to his emotions. Because we see here Jesus feeling emotions. What's even more profound than the fact that he feels them is that he actually goes to express them. Like he could have felt them and not said anything about them. I mean, we sometimes have this, this picture of Jesus as being like this Zen Buddhist philosopher who's just like, Father, not my will, but yours. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Without any emotion, like this detached, no offense, like doctor, you know what I mean, who's coming with a bad bedside manner. But that's not the case at all. Jesus experienced the full range of human emotions, and he wasn't afraid not only to feel them, name them, but also to articulate them. And it actually was one of the keys to his ministry among other people, his effectiveness in being able to, to, to love people well was his attunement to, his awareness of, his emotions, and listening for God in his emotions. Isaiah 53, let me just give you some examples of this in the Bible. Isaiah 53, verse 3, so long before, hundreds of years before this event in the garden, here's what Isaiah the prophet had to say about the Messiah. He would be despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, the same word here, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. His life would be marked by emotional pain, Isaiah says. Mark chapter three, so not just anxiety, not just depression, not just grief, not just sorrow. Jesus experienced other emotions as well. Mark chapter three, again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. So now we have a, a, a justice issue about to arise. And this always dials into the deep ire of Jesus, especially when it happens within a religious context. They, being the religious leaders, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal them on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Notice, no concern for the man that's in pain. They just wanted to entrap Jesus. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to all the religious leaders, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? They were silent. Notice, Jesus is going to get as angry about complicity in silence when it comes to justice, as he does as if they actually slapped the guy in the face or murdered him. And he looked around at them with anger, anger, a righteous anger, grieved. You can be angry and be grieving at the same time. Grieved at the hardness of their hearts. They didn't care. They didn't feel. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Jesus felt anger. Like we're taught oftentimes that hard emotions like anger are unbiblical. But anger can actually be a little bit of a trail, a pathway to what you really value, what you care about. He's not angry here for the sake of being angry. He's saying, angry because he loves people created in God's image who are being oppressed and ignored and marginalized. Luke 7, verse 9 and 11 through 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord, when Jesus saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. And he raises her son from the dead. That word compassion, I think I've shared with you guys, is one of my favorite words in the Bible. It's splagnizomai. 
It's literally this empathy that rises up from your bowels. That's the idea. It rises up from so deep inside of you that Jesus could not help but have pity and compassion and empathy on this woman and do something about it. Jesus had compassion. Luke 10, 21, Jesus felt joy in that same hour. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. He was full of joy. Jesus not only knew how to do the heart emotions, sometimes at Soma, we're, we're good at the heart emotions. We like to lament. We like to complain. We like to be honest about how bad things are. But notice Jesus can go the other way too. He can experience joy. He can testify to his joy and be full of joy. It's not inauthentic to be joyful despite what the cynics tell us. If you're only angry, if you're only sad, if you're only depressed and there's no joy, you're missing out on at least half of what it looks like to be a full-hearted disciple of Jesus. The final one here, uh, actually two more, John chapter 11, when Jesus saw her weeping, so he's at the tomb of Lazarus, one of his best friends, humanly speaking, a family he deeply loved. When Jesus saw one of the sisters weeping, Mary and Martha, the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he's deeply moved in his spirit. This language here is troubled, or it was like a a horse that was snorting in anger. He's, He's deeply disturbed. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then the shortest Bible verse in the entire Bible, Jesus wept. He's not afraid to cry. So lest we think of Jesus as a Zen Buddhist philosopher, teacher, Hebrews 5, I think in many ways, commenting on this very passage in Matthew 26, says this about our Lord. And and it's disturbing to many of us who are detached and indifferent emotionally. But here's what it says about Jesus, Hebrews 5. In the days of his flesh, while he walked the earth in human form, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Notice, not just prayers and supplications, not nice prayers, not polite prayers, not like, oh Lord, if it be your will, if you please. No. With loud cries and tears. Like many people ask, like how did the disciples know that Jesus was saying these things? I imagine because he was screaming his head off with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. And this is crazy, but it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. It was by by dealing with his emotions, by dialing into the reality of what was happening inside of him that he learned what it looked like to be obedient, to suffer, to be transformed in terms of his earthly mission here as our savior. So what we learn about Jesus is that Jesus in the Bible is presented to us as fully God and fully human. He's 100% God, 100% man. It's not 50% man and 50% God. It's a different kind of math. So if you're a math teacher, I'm sorry, but it's 100%, 100%. Jesus is fully God, fully man. Jesus was an emotional being. Why? because he was a human being. To feel is to be human. If Jesus didn't have emotions, if he was only partly human, he could not fully represent us in salvation. You ever thought about that? He couldn't redeem all of us if he didn't encompass and embody all of us. The church fathers used to have a saying, and it went like this, the early church fathers, what was not assumed was not redeemed. If Jesus didn't take on emotions, he couldn't redeem emotions, he couldn't redeem humans. 
So here's what that means for us then. Ignoring our emotions, not discipling our emotions, not acknowledging our emotions, has destructive consequences on our relationship with God, our relationship with others, and even our relationship with ourselves and our own souls. To the degree that we are unable to feel and express and surrender our emotions to God, we remain impaired in our ability to love well, to love God, to love others, and even to love ourselves. Love your neighbor as yourself. And, and I say that because it's, it's a struggle, and I don't want to get too deep into this, because I think we know, like, we struggle with emotions. So I don't, I don't need, like, intuitively, I think you know that emotions are a challenge for most of us. I, I, in my own story, um, I did not learn how to handle my emotions in a, in a healthy way growing up. And um, we talked about family of origin last week. Some of that has to do with your family of origin, right? You're learning from the, your earliest, like, your earliest days. You are absorbing an emotional environment in your home. Your parents never sit down and say, this is how you do emotions. But like, you know what it's like to be in an anxious home. You know what it's like when people are yelling. You, you take that on emotionally before you take it on consciously. I grew up in a family where um, you, you would call this in the language of attachment, uh, an avoidant attachment style, attachment style uh, which led to kind of a detached way of relating to my emotions, meaning I didn't do emotions. My family didn't do emotions. Both of my parents grew up in themselves very emotionally chaotic homes with various levels of abuse and trauma. Both their parents' dads were in the wars. So I get it. It's easy to do what in a chaotic home? Stuff your emotions. And, and I think they implicitly taught us the same. In my home, when things got hard and difficult emotions began to rise up, it was like an emotional cold war, right? Everyone ran to their rooms, shut the door, and waited for the storm to blow over. And occasionally, that strategy didn't work, and these passive-aggressive explosions would happen in my family. Now, I don't know what kind of family you grew up in. Maybe you grew up in a family that expressed emotions all the time, hot emotions, hard emotions, aggressive emotions. I, I also didn't learn in my church family of origin, I also didn't learn much about emotions either that was healthy. I became a Christian as a 13-year-old in a tradition that was very skeptical of emotions. Right? So they, they, they talked about and they taught us that as human beings, we're physical beings. We're supposed to take care of our bodies, be holy, right? Exercise, things like that. We're, we're, we're intellectual beings, so we should learn theology and doctrine and apologetics in a Christian worldview, and we spend a lot of time in Bible studies and theology training, which again, I'm all for that. I'm all for doctrine and theology. They taught us that we're social beings and that we, we have to manage our relationships. They taught us about forgiveness and things like that, fellowship. We didn't talk a whole lot, though, about emotions. As a matter of fact, I can't recall one sermon growing up about emotions. Maybe I missed it. We just didn't talk about them. It's like the missing piece, right? What emotions, the way we talked about emotions is don't put your trust in your emotions. Be suspicious of your emotions. Put your trust in facts. Put your, tr your trust in truth. Put your trust in your mind. Because what? Jeremiah says, the heart is deceptive above all things. Who can trust it? Now, let me just say this about Jeremiah. The heart in the Bible is not synonymous with emotions. The heart also includes your mind, it includes your will. It includes your decision-making. 
So when, like if, we, if we're gonna go there and say, don't trust the heart, that's the same thing we're gonna say to the mind. Don't trust your thoughts either because they're just as depraved and distorted as your heart, your feelings. But I was taught, don't trust your emotions. Emotions are bad. They'll lead you to do crazy things. Now, I didn't realize any of this was going on until I got into my 20s. I got married, and I married a person very in tune with her emotions, very explicit with her emotions, who was always asking me these questions. How do you feel? And I'm like, that question terrifies me. I don't know how I feel. Just silence. Quit asking me how I feel. I don't know. We, we went through some trauma in our early marriage. We lost a baby. And I remember just feeling this sense of emptiness and not being able to connect with my wife on an emotional level. I didn't know how I felt. And I just theologized as I was taught to do. I, I went to theology. God works all things for the, to good, uh, together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I began to quote scripture at my wife instead of entering in and really feeling the pain of losing a child. We moved around a lot, and that caused some relational struggles. And again, I, I just wasn't present from the heart. I, 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 in my late 20s, all of this stuffing of my emotions led me to a deep battle with anxiety. I mean, literally to the point where I was having multiple panic attacks every night. I thought I was going to die. I had all this bottled up emotion. And I went to the doctor and they're like, you're fine. I wasn't fine. I wasn't emotionally healthy. I hadn't learned how to deal with my emotions. Now, I don't know what your background is. I've noticed that there are kind of some typical ways that Christians tend to respond to emotional pain. For some of us, we deny emotional pain. Denial is kind of our strategy of choice. When things get hard, we feel sorrowful, deeply troubled, grieved, whatever it is, angry. We just say, emotions? What emotions? I don't have emotions. I'm not emotional. I'm not an emotional person. Right? And so we distract ourselves. We get on social media. We, we scroll. We watch. We binge on Netflix. We escape. We minimize Maybe we, maybe we just, like, if we learn the Christian way to deal with that is, like, crank up the, the, like, hill song. You know what I'm saying? It's like when things get hard, God turns gardens into graves. After a while, though, it gets kind of hollow, doesn't it? Because actually, it doesn't always feel that way. The best is yet to come. We, we embrace these pithy, trite slogans that don't work, at least not past your, your 30s. We, we intellectualize things, right? That's a, way, that's a form of denial. Jesus doesn't get to the garden and say, here we go, graves to gardens. No, he's deeply grieved. Some of you demonize your emotions. Emotions are bad and they can't be trusted, right? So we stuff our emotions, as I said, which leads over time, when, what you stuff down will eventually leak out. It will eventually explode, Erosions over time lead to explosions emotionally, and it'll lead to all kinds of unhealthy ways in which those emotions find their way out, usually in self-destructive behaviors. Or, for some of us, you're like, not me, man, I'm all about emotions. You deify your emotions, right? You deify your emotions. Emotions are everything. This is what we're taught culturally, right? You do you. You, you just allow emotions to kind of be and whatever is your strongest emotion, your strongest desire, that's you. 
Now here's the problem with that. That changes like every day. So which you is the real you? Is it the angry one that's raging on everybody or the depressed one that wants to be away from everybody? For you, your emotions, it's like you've been thrown into the backseat of the car and somebody's driving at like 100 miles an hour and you feel like it's out of control. So I don't know what, where you find yourself. My point is we all struggle with our emotions, especially in the church. It's a weird place because we don't talk about emotions. So we can learn here a lot about what it means to disciple our emotions. So we don't, we don't want to be driven by our emotions. We don't want to be denying our emotions or ignoring them or pressing them down. Just like our minds, the renewing of your mind, we need to renew our emotions. We need to disciple our emotions. And that's exactly what happens here. Something comes over Jesus. John Calvin, I love the way he says it back in the 16th century, his commentary in this passage. He says, something overtook Jesus in an instant. And then he sought to essentially correct it and align it. So he has this strong emotion and then he's teaching us what it looks like to to meet God in this place of our emotions, to disciple our emotions in a healthy way. So what do we learn? We see Jesus is an emotionally healthy person. He's an emotionally mature human being, right? He was emotionally aware, he was emotionally articulate and he loved God and he loved others well. It was his compassion that allowed him to see people in pain and move towards them. See, when you don't disciple your emotions, you also can't be aware of the emotions of others. You can't read their body language. You can't see pain and distress and anxiety and worry because you don't even know what that looks like yourself. Jesus was so emotionally mature. He didn't run from the pain, but rather he sat in the pain and he worked through the pain. And he learned obedience and he learned what it looked like to be intimate with his father and with his disciples. And I would argue as his disciples, as his apprentices, he wants us to also learn what it looks like to be fully human, how to be with him emotionally, how to become like him emotionally, how to do what he did. Now, one difference between us and Jesus is none of us are dying on the cross for anybody's sin. So I'm not saying that it's exactly the same. But I'm saying there is a parallel between what's happening here inside of Jesus and his paying attention to this and articulating this that allows him to be emotionally healthy and to actually go to the cross and do what he did. Irenaeus, an early church father, said this, our Lord Jesus Christ, through his transcendent love, became what we are, that he might bring us to be what he is himself. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. I put fully there because that's not actually in the translation, but it's, I think, what he meant. To be flourishing in all dimensions of our humanity, allowing all aspects of our humanity, emotional, intellectual, spiritual, physical, intellectual, to grow up under the influence of grace, to produce wholehearted disciples of Jesus. So if you're a person that thinks expressing your emotions is getting in the way of your thinking, you can't think without emotions. You can't be healthy without emotions. You cannot be mature without emotions. As a matter of fact, the absence of feelings in the Bible is often a refusal to face the sorrow and the reality of life and the hunger that we have for heaven and for fullness and for life. It is not the mark of maturity. It is the boast of evil. Read Isaiah 47. Read Revelation 18. So what do, we, what do we learn from Jesus here quickly about how to handle our emotions? 
Three things. First, um, we have to learn to listen to our emotions. Listen to your emotions. Jesus felt emotions. He was aware of what he was feeling. I'm deeply troubled. My soul feels like it's being crushed. Those are, that's, that's not like a metaphor. <laughs> this is what I feel. See, you can't disciple what you're not aware of. You can't steward what you're ignoring. See, Americans, we, we tend to undervalue our interior lives. So much weight is put on the exterior, the external, the image, our competencies, right? Like, think about how much money you spent last year in your business, how much money is spent in your hospital system, how much money is spent in your undergraduate education, how much money you've spent in your life, like you as a family, developing external competencies, skills, habits, practices, External competencies. But how much money did you spend? How much money did your business spend developing people's inner world? Which is the fuel for everything that happens externally. It's what sustains the external world. Right? Think about the analogy we used a few weeks ago of the iceberg. 90% of what it means to be human is happening underneath the surface, happening inside of us. Do you even know, like, do you even have a vocabulary for your inner world? Right, like your inner world, you're, you're, a, you're an emotional being, you're a, you're a human being. Your, emotion, your inner world includes feelings. Your inner world includes thoughts, lots of them for some of you. Desires, choices that you're making, memories that you have, an imagination that you're trying to figure out what to do with. Sometimes it invades you're conscious in ways that are really intrusive and unexpected and sometimes even deviant. What do you do with that? What do you do with lust? What do you do with thoughts of violence that spring up inside of you, sometimes mostly unwanted? For some of us, it just starts with understanding what emotions are. You can't deal with emotions. If, you, if I ask you the question right now, what is an emotion? How would you define an emotion? Never thought about that, right? It's this abstract, weird feeling I have. Okay, let me give you a definition. Like, this is what emotions are. What are emotions? Where do they come from? Physiologically, emotions are the brain's representation of body states. Simple definition. The brain's representation of body states. Emotions are the energy around which our brain organizes. And it's how we connect with God, how we connect with others, how we connect with ourselves. See, what's happening neurobiologically around emotion is that there's a stimulus, and your brain unconsciously and implicitly is drawn towards this stimulus. And it assesses this stimulus in light of all kinds of neural networks that incorporate your brain stem, like the lower region of your brain, which is where the fight or flight impulse is. It's the most primitive part of your brain. The limbic circuitry, which is the emotional kind of part of your brain, right? Where emotions and fear recognition. And it compares, it compares your past implicit experiences to see, is this thing a threat or not? Do I need to do something about this so that it can anticipate future action? Emotions are all about anticipating and then action. That's emotion, like anticipating motion. And emotions are felt as embodied sensations more than they are thoughts or ideas. You feel your emotions before you know what's even happening, right? Like that's why emotions are that, like you can look at the heaviness in your chest as a signal for an emotion, Clenching your jaw. How many of you clench your jaw and you don't even realize it until somebody points it out? Why are you clenching your jaw? Some of you have jaw issues because of that. Tightening muscles in your back or around your neck. Sweating, an increased heart rate. 
Like the longer these things go on, we, we all of a sudden become aware of them. And when we become aware of these intensifying feelings over a long period of time, that's what you refer to as an emotion. I feel anxious because my heart's been racing for the last two minutes. I feel angry because I just have this energy that's like my entire mental state just shifted and I have just a surge of energy, of negativity. It's making me angry. When I first began this journey, um, I didn't know anything about emotions 10 years ago. This is my feelings chart. I encourage you to find yourself a feeling chart, to listen to your emotions, to grow in emotional literacy. We need feelings chart. Feelings are not bad and of themselves, they're gifts. So we have the eight core emotions right here. This is from a book by Chip Dodd. I, I encourage you to read this book, The Voice of the Heart, if you're wanting to grow in your emotions. Kurt Thompson's book, Anatomy of the Soul, would be another one. Dan Allender's book, Cry of the Soul, would be another one. But these emotions, there's a gift to these emotions. And when these emotions get impaired, they can be bad. So shame is not always bad. You don't want to be shameless. Right? That's what you call a sociopath. <laughs> shame can be good. It can lead you to repentance. But toxic shame's not good, right? So we need to grow in emotional literacy. Just a couple of suggestions on growing in emotional literacy. Our ability to listen and recognize our emotions. Charles Spurgeon had this insight this week, and I thought it was so brilliant. I was reading this passage as a Baptist pastor in the 19th century. He said, notice uh, the role that silence and solitude plays in Jesus being in tune with his emotions. He goes away to a quiet, lonely, deserted place where he's by himself. He slows down, right? Remember our quote from Spiritual Formation a couple years ago? Hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life, Dallas Willard says. He slows down and he goes out into a desolate place where he can be alone, a place that would have been familiar to him. We need to find those places in our lives to slow down, to pay attention. You cannot pay attention to your body when you're running and running and running from meeting to, I mean, how many of your days, if you're a young mom, if you're a, a young employee trying to earn your way, like how many of your days start at 6 a.m. and it's like you blacked out until 9.30 at night. You don't know what happened. You can't pay attention. You're like, the only time you have to pay attention to your emotions is like 11 p.m. when you lay your body flat. And what happens? Emotional flooding. I feel all the feels now, right? Everything. Anger, depression, sadness, whatever. So we have to find spaces, five minutes throughout your day for silence and solitude. Um, it's also important to reconnect to your body. Notice Jesus here falls on the ground in grief. There's a mind-body connection. When we are alienated from our bodies, we will not feel our emotions. Our bodies are a reality check that tell us what we really believe. So you can say, for instance, I'm not afraid of X, Y, and Z. Guess what? Your body might tell you differently. If you're feeling anxious when you get around certain people, your body's trying to tell you something. Maybe God is speaking through your body, trying to tell you what you really believe. You can say, I don't struggle with lust, but your body's gonna tell you something different. You can say you don't struggle with anger, but why are you always erupting in anger on people around you? Your body will always tell you what you really believe. And remember, we don't just have a body. We are a body. We are embodied souls and ensouled bodies. So we have to learn our body's way of communicating to us. Your body will always tell you truth. It's one of the ways. Not always exactly truth, but it is one of the ways that God communicates truth. So I want to encourage you, there's some exercises you can do, just real practical. 
the beginning of your day, take five minutes, lay down flat in a dark room, and just engage what we might call body prayer. God, I want you to speak to me in my body today. God, what's happening inside of me? God, thank you for this body, this flesh and bone that you've given me. I I believe that you want to speak to me through my emotions. What am I feeling? And start at the soles of your feet. Where do you feel tension? Where do you feel an ache? Where do you feel pain? Where do you feel shame? Literally go from the the soles of your feet to your head and notice and pay attention and just say, God, is there something you want to say to me through my body today? Is there something I'm afraid of that needs to be confronted? Is there something I'm ashamed of that needs to be healed? Is there something from my past that I'm forgetting that needs to be explored? You could also do Ignatius's prayer of examine, where you just take a few minutes. Ignatius developed a way to pay attention to his emotions. He's the founder of the Jesuits um, many centuries ago. And he called these consolations and desolations. He looked at his feelings and he said, which of my feelings lead me towards God and which lead me away from God? And he's discerning those feelings. And he's asking those questions. He reviews your day, his day, five minutes, 10 minutes, in the morning or at the nighttime. It's just a way to get connected with your body. Um, scripture is also a really helpful way for you to grow in emotional literacy, right? Scripture. Jesus here uh, in these cries, many people hear echoes of the Psalms, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 specifically. One of the ways I've learned the most about my emotions is taking time every day to read a Psalm. In the Psalm, we hear all of those eight emotions, anger, hurt, sadness, loneliness, shame. They're given voice in the Psalms. It's where we learn to speak an emotional language in the Psalms. Read the Gospels. Look at the life of Jesus. Watch, movie, watch good movies. Listen to good music. Read good literature. If you want a very emotional writer who's a, who's a follower of Jesus, Flannery O'Connor, she's a Southerner. She is like super graphic and emotional with her writing. Get into a relationship with somebody who's a heart person who can speak emotional language. But here's the point. We have to listen to our emotions. How you are emotionally with God is how you be emotionally with others. And how you are emotionally with others, I bet, is how you are emotionally with God. If you are detached in your relationships with others, I would speculate that you're probably also detached in your intimacy with God. And if you don't allow God to enter into those spaces with you, disciple your emotions, helping you connect at a deep level with him, you will not be able to minister to others effectively and love them well. So listen to your emotions, pray your emotions, right? Emotions, here Jesus shows us, can be the beginning of prayer. Jesus didn't just feel these feelings and go, oh, that's interesting, I feel anxious. (laughs) No, he starts to pray. Three times he prays. He brings these emotions before God. He gives them to God through prayer. Emotions, Dan Allender says, are the cry of the soul. They, they, they lift our field of vision from merely the horizontal, what's happening to me, to a, a higher plane. Who am I? What direction am I moving in? What am I doing with God? They're theological as much as they are horizontal. They invite us into a relationship with God to say, what am I doing with God in this moment? Am I believing God? Am I trusting God or not? See, we want to run away from these emotions, but what if your emotions are an invitation to meet God? To meet God. God wants to meet you in those places and transform you. Allender says this, ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. 
Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality. And reality is where we meet God. Emotions are the language of the soul. They are the cry that gives the heart a voice. In neglecting our intense emotions, we are false to ourselves and we lose a wonderful opportunity to know God. We forget that change comes through brutal honesty and vulnerability before God. Only face to face with our deepest ruling passions is there hope of redeeming the fabric of our inner world. That's what we see in the Psalms. People that can cry out in anger, dash my enemies' heads, their kids' heads against the rocks. We have a God who's not afraid of anger as we often are. And it's in that place that God reveals himself. He transforms us. He reminds us about his character, his nature, his goodness, his steadfastness, his commitment to us. And that's the final thing. Trust God with your emotions. Trust God with your emotions. Emotional health means being able to say both, let this cup pass for me. I don't wanna do this. this is, I don't feel like doing this. Even from the lips of our Lord, I don't want to do If there's any way to let this cup pass from me. And he can also say, thy will be done. That is emotional health. We can scream in anger. We can be afraid. We can be deeply troubled and grieved and sad and distressed. And we can wrestle through that with God. But ultimately, we have to trust God. We have to surrender to God and recognize that our strongest emotions are not always our deepest ones. Our strongest desires are not always our truest ones. They have to be discerned in the presence of God. We have to trust God with our inner world. In closing, what we see here is the bookend of emotions and redemption in the Bible. And isn't it interesting here that it all comes down to a garden That should bring a bell for those of us who know the scriptural narrative. Because really you could say the Bible is a story of two gardens. The first garden, our parents, Adam and Eve, they experience intense emotions, shame and fear and guilt. And rather than trusting God with these emotions, trusting God with themselves, trusting God to be God and God's outcomes to be the best ones for them, they, they didn't trust God. They didn't give their trust to God. And that led to sin and guilt and blaming and hiding and the disordering of creation in human relationships. Contrast that with Gethsemane, a place also of intense emotions, fear and anxiety and distress and sadness and pain. But all of that is given to God in trust and it leads to life and salvation. Jesus looked death in the face. He stared the abyss in its face. And because of his obedience, he gets hell. He gets judgment. We get the face of God, the presence of God, the love of God. That is the love that transforms us. Jesus is not just our model of how to handle this well. He is the power that enables us to do this because he drank hell and wrath and judgment and sin down to its dregs. He drank the cup of suffering. We now experience the righteousness, the love of God, and that love changes us. I'm gonna just pray over us. We're gonna take communion together. And I wanna invite you just to bring your emotions before God as we take communion here in just a moment. We're gonna confess our sins to God.
I wanna invite you just to offer up your heart to God. Proverbs 4 says, guard your heart for out of it flow springs of life. Guard your heart. It is, it is the most precious thing that you have. It is where the battle for faith and trust and life and death and salvation is waged. It is inside of you, in your heart, in your soul. I want to encourage you just to offer your heart up to God. Whatever you're feeling, if it's anger, if it's confusion, if it's sadness, depression, anxiety, fear, worry, hurt, or a mixture of all those things, just offer it up to God and God say, would, and say, God, would you enter into this space? I believe you're inviting me to bring you into this space. Meet me here, God. Transform me. Maybe it becomes an opportunity for you to trust in Jesus fully, freely from your heart. Become his disciple. Deal with the hurt and the wounds and the anger and the bitterness that have plagued you for many years and that will continue to plague you if you don't. Maybe it's an opportunity, you're an embittered Christian and you've allowed your heart to become unfeeling because you've been hurt, you've been traumatized. And this is just an opportunity to offer it up to God and to say, God, help me believe. In my unbelief, help me believe. God, I just wanna enter in and trust you with my body, my emotions, my feelings. God, would you reveal your heart to me? Speak to me. Just take a moment and let's offer up our hearts to God.